Welcome to the DNA Show. DNA? Dude, are we doing a science show? No, D is for Dennis. Oh, A is for Andy. And N is for and? Oh, man, nerds. Because we're nerds, dude. Yeah. Well, good. Then we can talk about comics and movies and pop culture and sports. Sports. Sports and nerds. Yeah, we're going to make that work. All right. Let's roll. Hey, welcome to the Dennis and Andy Show. I'm Andy with my buddy. And I'm Dennis. Back again. We are back. I know you missed us. I know know you go to sleep every night going, why don't they do this daily? (laughs) They only do it once a week. And that's just not enough. It's it's really not. But, you know, that's what gets you coming back. We just like to dangle it out there and have you swat it like a cat in his toy, just taking wax at it. Yep. And we appreciate the feedback that we get and things that you all want to talk about. Just leave your comments, you know, on our Facebook page. Probably the easiest. You can email us. But just uh, make sure you're following us in there and shoot us anything that uh, you want to have discussed. That's right. The email is the Dennis and Andy show at yahoo.com. Yep. So feel free to drop us a line. We actually did get an email and the email actually it was a uh, it was asking us to talk about a show that just dropped on Netflix that I actually watched when it was on uh, regular TV two years ago, and now it's catching all the buzz. And Dennis, uh, they want us to talk about Waco. 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 So Dennis, you just watched it. I did, just finished it actually, and I did not watch it when it originally aired. But because we're all stuck in our houses right now, what are we gonna do? We're gonna watch Netflix. And what wound up trending on Netflix? Waco. And it wound up, uh, it was ranked in the top 10. So, yep, it was. It showed right up on the main page. So I asked my wife, I said, hey, I can always let the Ozark slide for a little bit here because I got to get caught up on that. And I says, but really kind of watch Waco because everybody's been kind of talking about it. So like Tiger King, it's kind of taken us by buzz because we're all stuck in the house. Now, like I said, I actually watched it because it came out in 2018 and it was on... Don't quote me on this, but it, it was on a TNT USA network. It was on one of those networks back then. And I remember the previews back then getting, and it really piqued my interest because, you know, it happened in 1993. In yep. 1993, I was like 22, 23 years old. I didn't care about stuff like that. It was just a blip. What 22-year-olds rushing home at night after work going, I got to turn on the nightly news. Right. Nobody. Right. So I, I vaguely remember the headline and Janet Reno and, you know, Clinton and whatever. That, yep. So I watched it. Um, my memory is not as fresh because, like I said, I haven't watched it since two years ago. But Dennis just did watch it. So we'll talk about it and my memory will be refreshed. Well, so it, what was your take on it? I, I thought it was very well done. Um, it had a great cast. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to see it. Um, Michael Shannon wound up playing um, Gary, who was um, the FBI negotiator who was in charge of it. And he uh, was kind of the good guy out of the FBI. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He wanted to see a peaceful resolution yeah. with it. He figured he could do something. And that wound up, um, obviously, you know, they didn't follow his lead. Yeah. Um, um, Taylor Kitsch um, played David Koresh. For, for me, I was like, oh, it's Gambit. Yeah. See, for me, it was Friday Night Lights. That's what I remember Taylor Kitsch from, was Friday Night Lights, the TV show. Yep. 
who he was fantastic in the thing. And I do remember him as Gambit. But once again, Michael Shannon, Zod. Yeah, well, so exactly. To a uh, hero, well, one's a villain, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But the thing that I was, Taylor Kitsch, I thought, did a fantastic job. Yeah, I thought he did a really good job. But the thing that was weird to me, I guess, is his physical transformation from the standpoint of he was in Friday Night Lights, played a high school jock football player, so he was in really good shape. Yep. And he goes Gambit. Once again, superhero, really good shape. And we're not talking like Chris Hemsworth buff, yeah, but really good shape. But for David Koresh, he had to thin out a lot. Yes. And I know he lost a lot of weight for the role. Um, and um, I he looked the part. I mean, oh I, I, I thought he did great. It, seeing, like after I watched it a couple years ago, I... It, it just took me down a rabbit hole where I watched YouTube documentaries on it and seeing the real David Crash, he he just home run, knocked it out of the park. Yeah. I would just find it hard that if I got to really good shape, like muscle-wise and stuff like he was, and then it was like, okay, yeah, you look good, but we really need you to thin out and just get, you know, gone. I'd be like, really? Yeah. Do I really want to lose? I'm looking good right Yeah, but now. that's how committed you are. It always reminds me of Christian Bale when he did The Mechanic. And oh, he yeah. lost that where he went like super thin and anorexic. And that was just like, wow, some people are willing to do that for their roles. And they, they you flashed the green. Yeah, I suppose. I'm willing to do it, I guess. As long as they help you back from the path. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> once, yeah. once filming's over, they're like, you want to look like that again, go hire your own personal trainer. Yeah. I mean, Rory Culkin, he winds up playing um, um, David uh, Thibodeau, yep. Thibodeau and, um, which I thought, and one of the, the McCulkins. Uh, the um, actor. Yeah. But it was, um, you know, he did an interesting because he wound up, you know, when this was all done, he wrote a book. Gary wrote, wound up writing a book. And between those books and then all the the information they put together, this is what where this actually derived from was based off of their two novels. Now, refresh us. What was David Thibodeau's character in the movie? Because I like I said, it's been two years well, he was in he, the compound. Like, so he wasn't originally in the compound. They had gone off to you know go play in a band, and the drummer didn't show up, and he's a drummer. So he was like, "Hey, what what are you doing?" He goes, uh, "Going going out." And he goes, "You got anything else to do? Why don't you play with us?" Well, he didn't wound up having a place to stay that was close by. So at that point, you know, he was like. Well, David was like, why don't you come back? We don't even have running water. It's not much, but we got free beds. It's close by. It's good. And he wound up being attached and, and wound up staying with him till right. almost the bitter end. But he didn't. Oh, wait, he did have a love interest in it. Wasn't it um, Julie Garner's character or no? Yeah. Yeah. So it he was. wound up because when when the FBI was had infiltrated him, the interesting thing was they were they they could get him for either marrying her too young because she was way underage right. even for Texas, right. um, but because he was already married, um, and he was married to Supergirl Melissa right. uh, Benoist. Benoist. God, so superheroes in this movie. Supergirl, I know Zod Gambit. Neil before Zod. <laughs> Can't help it. So, yeah, he wound up writing a book because he wound up surviving and he wanted to be there. But he also knew 
that it was a dead end. It was just a, a really good. And Julia Garner, I mean, I thought she was very interesting because, you know, I'm watching Ozark with her in it right now. Sure. And she's so powerful and dominant, and she's got the, the southern drawl, and it's just amazing. She's a completely opposite character in this. So I was like, wow, just kind of taken aback of how good she was in this. Uh, yeah, no, in, in Waco, she definitely she played Mich- Michelle Jones. She was a very... Uh, yeah, you're right. Very opposite. Very timid. Which, yeah, I mean, you're an actor. That's what you have to do. Play these different roles. But, you know, my first my first uh, experience with noticing her was the first season of Ozark. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like after the show was over, I, I started Googling her and seeing anything about her. I just assumed, oh, could be her real accent. I, in fact, I can't even tell you if... what. I don't know if in real life she has an accent or not that's like really discernible. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is she really beefing it up for Ozark? Or is which, this how she really sounds like? Which one is her natural? Exactly. Yeah. Which I think is awesome. I love seeing actors that aren't huge names so you can really get into it. And that, well, that goes to the body transformation with Taylor Kitsch playing, you know, David Koresh. He did thin out so much you almost had to do that double take, like, was that the dude that played Gambit? Right. Was that the dude from... Now, Michael Shannon, not much of a stretch. As soon as he came on, you're like, oh, good casting. Michael Shannon's awesome. Yes. Just uh, a great actor. But you're right. Getting just back to the Waco story, you know, Michael Shannon really wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to wait him out because he really was making that connection with Koresh. And basically, his bosses or whatever came in and yanked them out and said, no, nah, man, we're done. We're not waiting this out anymore. It's been this amount of time. We're rolling in. We're taking this guy's down. And like I said, as a 23-year-old, when it happened, I was like, wow, that's that's pretty bad. The place burned down, the, the, the deaths and stuff. See, Mitch was more shoot first, ask questions later. Oh, and, yeah. you know, and he was all about going in, showing force. And, and they made a number of references. Now, what's interesting, it'll be interesting to find out, you know, if you were to read the books and other things that were on there. Were, were, did this take any advantage one way or another of upplaying or downplaying certain aspects of it? But, yeah, Mitch was about, you know, we're, we're out, the, the police are outgunned in, in the country and we need to show force, whereas... Michael Shannon's character was like, hey, we, we can talk him down off this cliff. We can just right. walk. Because realistically, they, they did so very little wrong for them to bring that in in the first place. And I, you, you kind of felt sympathy for him um, well, yeah, you know, because, going in. Because what I kind of got from it is, okay, there's definitely the underage stuff with Koresh and basically bringing in couples and then telling the husband basically – it's not, you should not be sleeping with your wife. I'll take that burden on. You don't need to worry about burdening yourself with that anymore. It's okay. That's definitely skeezy. Yes. You know, totally. But very cult leader Very, very cult leader <laughs> Which he was. But on the, on the, so that's one aspect of why the feds want to get in. And another aspect was them out of guns. Right. And stuff. But then I think about well, how many people were there. Yep. Of law-abiding age that were allowed to own weapons. And how many weapons were there? So, you know, I, basically what I'm saying is, let's say there was 100, 100 people that were allowed, you know, to own guns, right, in the compound. 
and let's say there were 500 guns. Yep. So that's what? Five guns per person. Right? If I'm doing my math right, five times, yeah, 500. Five guns per person. Okay, well, I already know people that own that many guns and are law-abiding citizens and stuff, and they weren't, at Waco, they weren't using them in an offensive way. Right. They weren't going out going, we've got these guns, let's go. You know, they weren't, they they were definitely a cult, but they weren't going out robbing banks and stuff. They they weren't even showing them. No. And and the the FBI had heard that they had been accumulating them. So they sent in um, the uh, FBI agent named Jacob to try and infiltrate and become a a rancher. Yeah. And... um, he, he obviously knew nothing about ranching, and, and no. they, they, they caught on to that right away. But David Koresh was like, well, I, I can turn him. You know, it's fine. You come on in. He never saw the guns. Nope. He never saw anything that was in there, nor did he see anything that would make them go, yeah, we need to come in here. So he was actually trying to wave them off when they decided, well, we're going to roll in with the, you know, ATF agents. And they had him in, like, cattle trucks, a cattle um um, wagons, you know, come in. He's actually drives out. Wait, don't do this. Don't don't do this. There's no reason to do it. But nope, we're we're just gonna go on in and just just show who we are. Right. When they could have easily, and I think there was a point in the movie. Wasn't there a point in the movie where uh, Michael Shannon's character Gary was basically trying to say, "Look, we can just when Crush comes out to make a grocery store run or something. Why don't we just arrest them right then?" Right. On the charges of... Uh, and he and his son went jogging every morning. They yeah. go, they literally come right up to the front right. door almost. So, so wasn't his character, that FBI agent, trying to make the case of, why don't we just arrest him? Right. <laughs> if, if you really think they're doing something, and then they kept telling him, even during that meeting, well, you need to find something. I'm, I'm working on it. But, right. but there's nothing there. Well, it's there. I hear what you're saying. But I haven't been able to find it. They're not showing it. They're not doing anything wrong that I can actually see. But your reports are telling you something different. Yeah. So this was definitely a heavy-handed, uh, yeah, moment. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it was definitely sketchy, you know. And I think there were definitely issues on both sides, you know. I mean... Once again, I don't. I'm, I'm not one for blanket statements, so I'm not going to be like FBI. They're all bad because they're not. Right. But things were handled probably. Things were mishandled. Right. You know, and I don't know if you're curious about Waco and what went down. I think this is a really good movie. I watched a few documentaries after this with interviews and mixing yep. those together with this. It seems like this movie did a really good job of telling the story. Yeah, and I would say base did the same kind of thing, and you know, CS gas was used, and you know, they they did a nice job at the very end of the movie going through the history. I knew some of the references oh, right. they were talking about, but not all of them. I didn't know there were that many. Or hey, tear gas was used here. Fire ensued. People died, and they right. just went through a timeline every single time they used it. So his point was, mistakes were made. But as the FBI, wouldn't you have at least, you knew this was a probability. So if you're going to use it and you know that a fire could break out, at least have a plan to immediately put out the fire. Right. And that just wasn't part of it. So anyway, just uh, very interesting. I'll be curious, you know, 
from from the historians out there for them to look did did they take one side too much or the other or was it very even-handed in in their portrayals yeah i mean it was you know once again it was a definite tragedy uh i don't really care that david koresh offed himself or or the other guy who knows it's still up in there whether david koresh killed himself or this other dude steve did it right that was that was part of the trivia was they had to kind of interpolate what actually happened because nobody knows what happened to david or steve in there they just showed what they had talked about during the show right shoot me yeah yeah, definitely, uh, definitely not losing sleep over the fact David Koresh wasn't around anymore after 1993. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. So, so we thought now would be a good time to move into comic books. That's right, because, you know, Zod, Gambit, Supergirl, and all, all in Waco. So what the heck? Let's talk some comics. Yeah, let's do that. So I, I talked to some of my artist friends. And one of the things we talk about is, you know, favorite artists growing up, what period of time did you discover this book, so on and so forth. And it got me thinking, like, when I think of, for instance, The Incredible Hulk, it was a book I, I grew up reading in the 80s, loved it. Well, there's been numerous artists over the years that have worked on The Incredible Hulk. You know, the first artist was Jack, was Jack Kirby. You know, he created the character with Stan Lee. But that was way before my time, way before Dennis's time. <laughs> yep. Uh, when I got onto the book, the artist on the book was a guy by the name of Sabu Sema. So when I think Hulk, and when I think the epitome of who is the artist, who's the vision that comes to my mind thinking of the Incredible Hulk, it's Sabu Sema's Hulk. Because every artist has a different style. Yep. So if you line up what Jack Kirby's Hulk looked like compared to Sabu Sema's, compared to Herb Trimpey, who had a long run on the book, they all look different. I mean, you can tell they're, oh, it's the green big muscle guy, but they're all uniquely that artist own. Just like if I drew the Hulk, it would be my version. Right. So for me, my version of the Hulk, when I think of him, is Sabu Sema. So Dennis, Incredible Hulk, who is the artist you most think of with the Incredible Hulk? So what's interesting is is I, I don't have one. I actually have I have two, um, and I read Incredible Hulk on and off throughout my entire collecting career. But the two that always stick out in my mind it would be uh, Dale Keown's run. Oh yeah, um, which it's to me. There's just so many parts of that which I just really fell in love with. And then, and then Todd McFarlane's run. And I know Todd McFarlane is, is well more known for, you know, Spider-Man and obviously Spawn. You know, the creator of Spawn. Oh, yeah. But his thing, Hulk 340. So, and again... Is that this, the one on the cover with the Wolverine, Wolverine popping the claws? Yeah, you know, and you know me, an X-Men guy. That cover is, is probably my favorite of all time. For any of the Incredible Hawks. I already love this story, but yeah. So you, the claws are up and you can see the reflection. It's just, it's just an awesome cover. So whenever I think of Hulk, those are the two that, that I really, that stand out for me. I get that. For me, besides Sal, if I was to go number two, it'd be Herb Trent. Um, I did love Dale's run. I did like Todd's as well. That, I mean, obviously, that's where I discovered Todd, even though he did work for DC first. Mm-hmm. And then the Hulk and then from there, Spider-Man. 
uh, I would put Dale above Todd just because I like, you know, style-wise, Dale's art just spoke to me more as, a, as an aspiring artist. Um, here's my question, though, because you are the you are the expert grader when it comes to comics and stuff and mm-hmm. no value and stuff. The one, so 340, that's the one with the Wolverine on the cover yep. with the claws pop. Is that worth something just because of that cover? Yes. It's just because of that cover. There's nothing story-wise that well, makes it special? Th- there's nothing super unique about the. It's a good story. Don't get me well, wrong. Yeah. It's a solid book all the way around. But that that cover is what triggers that's what, people. That's what makes it worth money. So when, when you're at the convention, it's it's when you, you put your wall up. Right. And then people start looking through it. You know, you always put your good books up on the wall. Of course. And then yeah. for a look at that book is always, even if people aren't looking particularly for that book, that stands out and they'll be like, oh, the Hulk or Wolverine. If they're true collectors, they'll be like 340. So, yeah, they automatically pull it out. But, uh, yeah, that, that cover is just, uh, it's it's a signature cover. Oh, no, it is. I just, I'm looking at it now. I'm just curious what that book goes for. So, let's take a, let's take a look real quick, see what that book, what? So, I'm looking... I'm looking at a price, CGC, CGC, once again, for people that haven't been with us before, is a book that is in a slab, it's in a plastic case, and it was officially graded. So the higher the grade, it goes from 1 to 10, or 0 to 10, 10 being the highest, 1 being the crappiest. It looks like a 9.4 CGC is about 159 bucks. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's creeping up, right. It, it, I mean, like, it's creeping up. There's like, yeah, yeah, but it's just, it's just an iconic cover. Unlike like Herb Trim, you know, you're you're in like Hulk 181, right? First, appearance which is the first well, appearance of Wolverine. Second appearance, technically. Technically, yes, Hulk 180 is 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 technically, but all the collectors do the Hulk Hulk 181 as his first full appearance. That just bothers me because this is I'm venting. This is we're, we should do a section called the vent. And I'm not talking about a big latte from Starbucks. <laughs> because Hulk 181, like Dennis said, is the issue where Wolverine is in the whole book. He fights the Hulk, and the Hulk's fighting Wendigo. So it's like this big three-way fight, whatever. That's the one that's worked the most because it's the first appearance. I'm using air quotes of Wolverine. Now, technically, Hulk 180, the issue before that, the last page of the book is a full figure shot of Wolverine leaping at the reader. So you see his full body. To me, that's his technical first appearance and should cost more. I could understand if in Hulk 180, they just showed him in like, you know, Wolverine in like silhouette or just a close up of his face, something like that, just a partial shot. Because then you're going, well, it's not his first technical full appearance because you don't right. see his full so body or anything. They have what they... Hulk 180, you literally see his full body. That is his first full appearance. Okay, so th- there's... Th- oh, this is, a, this is a big topic. So there's a first full appearance, and they have what they call a first cameo. So we'll, we'll, we'll go on to X-Factor. So cameo? So we'll, we'll go on to like X-Factor. So X-Factor 5 and 6 is the first appearances of Apocalypse. All right. So for those of you who have seen the movie or read the books, Apocalypse is um, um, one of the big bads from the X-Men universe. He's got a cameo, which means he appears in like the last scene of the last page of the book. 
And that's his cameo. So he technically makes his first appearance, but does nothing. And sometimes the character's not even named in it. You'll just see a, like a shadow but or something in X Factor number five, what do you actually see of Apocalypse? Just part of him in the back. The full first appearance where he's actually named and everything is actually six. So as a collector, are you going to go, right, you can go, you know, five or six. You really need both in order to say you got it. In Hulk, it's 180 and 181. You technically need both to cover your your bases. The black suit of Spider-Man, which then later becomes Venom. That is yes. an entire web of that kind of, of Why? stuff. Secret Wars 8. Secret War, that's his first appearance of the black suit. Right. Uh-huh. But then it's... Which but is, I don't have a problem with... Okay, well, go ahead. Yeah. So, so then... And then you've actually got Amazing Spider-Man 299 and then 300, which 300 is considered the first full Venom. 299 is the first cameo. It's the exact same thing where he's just done like... Part of a, the last scene or the last the last uh, frame, right? But see, the, the, I distinguish that because Marvel Superhero Secret Wars number eight is the first black suit. That right. makes sense. It's not Venom. He was never Venom. It's just the first black suit. And then going to those Spider Mans, I can totally I totally have no problem with saying three hundred is the first appearance of Venom because you see him in full. Right. If it's just a part of the body. I wouldn't call that a first appearance either. But Wolverine, once again, Hulk 180, it's full figure, in costume, no shadow. You see him, and he's named, if I remember correctly. Well, that was my question now. Did it say, I am the Wolverine? Did it? I'm asking, do you know? I'm trying to remember. It has been a while since we looked it up. We have Google right here. Uh, Let's find out. And while I'm doing that, we'll talk about another... Well, we were talking X-Men stuff. So when you think X-Men, who do you think for your X-Men artist? Who is it? Oh, again, so... So I've got to preface that as well. Again, it's not an easy answer for me. So when I look at... I have to look at it as a team. Okay? I have to look at it as a team. The creator team. The creator team. Because Claremont... Cochran, Vern, because there's overlap in there. But for me, it's one incredibly long, continuous, well-oiled machine from start to finish. So I have to say the three together as a team, that that is my... Now, there's no such thing as bad X-Men in, in, in my view. You know, I love the Jim Lee. I love the original, oh, you know, the Stan Lee uh, stuff, the, the first stuff. But, but for me, that run of the Dark Phoenix and the entire Phoenix saga and then, you know, dealing with the Hellfire Club and everything, yeah, that combo for me is the epitome of X-Men. Okay, see, I think, uh, I mean, I appreciate Burn, but the funny thing is, when I started buying it, buying X-Men, it was after Harry left the book, so I didn't discover it until later. So the bulk of the issues I bought as a fan, it was Paul Smith. Still Chris Claremont, because I mean, Chris Claremont was on the book from like 77 till the early 90s. It was like a 15 year run, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right, right after they stopped with the um, uh, reprints. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, art wise for me, it was a guy named Paul Smith. Great last name, got to say. I mean, <laughs> what can I say? Related. Great, great artist, not related. <laughs> um, but he was a great artist. I think he was, 
I think he was actually a very underrated artist too. Um, his style was very open and clean, almost animated looking or animation looking. His figures, he, Paul's one of those, he's another artist that just had this very unique look of his own. You didn't look at Paul Smith's stuff and go, oh, he liked this guy or oh, he liked this guy. And that's how John Byrne is too. John Byrne, you know, early on, he had more, he kind of had a Neil Adams influence, but few issues in on X-Men, once he got his feet under him at Marvel, you just looked at it, it was like, man, this John Byrne stuff is really unique. Uh, the last book is, I believe we were talking earlier, Captain America. Mm -hmm. Is there a Captain America artist that comes to mind? So for, for me, you? Captain America, I am definitely more classic oriented. So I, I'm going to go all the way back to Kirby and, and, and the one that I know he didn't do a lot of, but Starenko. Just because they're they're I mean, just classic. They, they are, but like, Starenko to me, once again, those three, Jim Starenko, fantastic artist, definitely left his mark on the comic book industry for doing really just a handful of books yeah. at Marvel. He didn't produce that many comic books. Right. Uh, Jim Stranko actually is also a, or was an escape artist. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, and with all the times artist. we've had conversations at, and he's very fun to talk to at at conventions and everything like that. And he loves to tell stories. Oh yeah, Jim that is not one I've ever heard. So yeah, this piques my interest. Yeah, Jim. Jim, before he got into comics and stuff, he was fascinated by escape artists. So he would do escapes and stuff. Um, I don't know any more details than that like what types he did mm -hmm. i just know he did do huh. escape artist type stuff so he anyhow he drew three issues of captain america way before our time as well uh they were fantastic issues i mean everything jim drew was fantastic I, to me he's more known at marvel for the shield the sh yeah yeah nick, nick fury. fury and the shield because he also did what two issues of x-men i believe yeah um but for me, Captain America is Mike Zek. Oh. Mike Zek, John Beatty, Mike was the penciler, John Beatty was the anchor. Uh, the first comic book I ever bought was an issue of Captain America by those guys, and I picked up every issue after that for, I think, it was about 12, 12 more issues, and then they left the book. So, to me, I think Zek. Of course, I think Kirby, but those are all guys, just like Steranko, I got into, you know, after you know, yep. after the book. Yep. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And what did you find out? Oh, so I'm looking at the last page of Incredible Hulk 180. It is a two-panel page. Actually, it's more than that. It's like three panels. But the two biggest panels on the bottom of the page, it ends with a very large panel, full shot. I mean, full figure of Wolverine. I'll post this image on our Facebook page so you can see it. He even says, this is Wolverine saying, why not try your luck against the Wolverine? And it says, better be here next time, Marvelite, since the Wolverine strikes, but once. But in his case, once is plenty. So it's a full figure <laughs> shot of yep. the character. No hard lighting. You can see his full costume. He is name dropped himself. Yes. The Wolverine. To me, this issue should cost more than Hulk 181. I am sorry, hands down, 
this should cost more than Hulk 181. And I would not argue that at all. However, you own a Hulk 181? <laughs> I do. I will pay for I will buy it from you for what an issue of Hulk 180 goes for in the same condition. And I laugh at you. Damn it. <laughs> well, now I must ask, is your Hulk 181 CGC? It is. And what is the grade on it? It's just a five. It's a mid-grade. Just a five. Yep. I look down at you now. Yep. I wouldn't want to it was garbage book. It was one I know you would. It, it's just one of those that, um, you know, over time, it's just there were certain first appearances that are, are d- tough to get, mainly because of the price. That was one of them. And uh, Is yeah, it signed? Captain Britain. Uh, no, it's not signed. That's, and did you buy it raw or did you buy it? Slow? No, no. I was actually at a convention. And it wound up, um, I, that was one of the last books I needed before my X-Men number one. Okay. And I had a gentleman who walked up and, and said, hey, I've got this for sale. And I had just sold um, my NYX3 and uh, my New Mutants 98. So I literally had $1,000 cash in my pocket. I offered him $1,000 cash for it, which was basically market value. Um, he had said no at that time. I can get more for it here. I'm like, go for it. You, If you can get more at this show, by all means do it. But I guarantee you, nobody's going to pay you more than $600 here at the show. But my offer will stand right. till the end of the show. And sure enough, 10 minutes before the show ended, his head was tucked down. He came over. He goes, is the offer still good? I said, yep. But I'm going to ask you a question. What was the most you were offered? He goes, $600. And I said, yep. And I says, because I'm not buying it to resell it. I'm (laughs) buying it for my collection. And I handed him the thousand bucks. So I have it. I didn't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, I paid retail at the time for it. But I was good with that because I, I I was done with my first appearances. I mean, as a small part of you, just as a joke to the guy, I wish you would have said, 600, that's the most somebody offered you? And he goes, yeah. And you go, six hundred, $2.50 is what I'll give you. That is higher than anybody in this place. And then he would Take look at me that. and he goes, oh, you must be Andy Smith. That's right. <laughs> um, we will, we will. Switch gears to talk about the murder hornets. God, I wish we had horrific music right now. Yeah. And I'm not talking about a metal band. Murder hornets. The murder hornets, which (laughs) would make a great name for a metal band, I must say. It would. would. If I could play, I would do that. I could shake my head like one. I just don't have the hair to go along with it. I'm good with a tambourine. There you go. I used to play trumpet. I don't know if trumpet would cut a metal band. So so what do we know about these murder hornets, Dennis? Well, they, uh, they originated from Japan. Um, they have first appeared in, um, it looks like, in, in Washington State. Um, a question real quick. Yeah. How'd they get here? There's no way they flew here. No, I mean, my, migration's kind of hard. All it takes, apparently, is for them to come over or get stuck in something. On a truck. Of a, I mean, on a, 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 a ship. Yeah, a on, on a cargo ship right. or a plane. Don't know. They're tough enough where they could probably survive uh, a flight, you know, even if they're in baggage or, or whatever. But they come over and, and then they reproduce. And uh, apparently all it took is a queen to maybe make her way, uh, make her way over. Um, what makes these unique? Well, wait, it had to take more than a queen. It couldn't just be one. Because what's she going to reproduce with? 
I don't know, it's but be more we, more. We, we may have to have a bee person or a hornet That's person, right. hornet you know, person. you know, pop in there um, and post something on our Facebook page about this. But what's interesting is these these murder hornets have an exoskeleton, so they will come in and they're natural predatory against uh, honeybees. Well, our honeybees in the U.S. are basically that of the European honeybees. And what's that mean? They're pussies. Well, they, they got little stingers, so and pussies. yeah, they they don't know how to defend against them. They can't even fight. They they can sting so they them. Are like the Europeans. So so think, let's go into comic books. <laughs> it, it's it's like me having a dagger and walking up to Iron Man and trying to stab him with a oh, dagger. Oh, okay. It that exoskeleton just goes doink, and then he just rips him. Um, they can actually tear through a, a honeybee hive in like a minute and a half, and literally destroy the entire thing. So a murder hornet's exoskeleton mm-hmm. is stronger than my skin, is what I'm hearing. Because I could be stung by a bee. <laughs> Again, like, like proportional, I would assume. So you'd be like Spider-Man. I have the proportionate power of the spider and strength of a spider. They have a very strong exoskeleton compared to the bees. Now, what's interesting is the Japanese honeybees have learned to evolve over time. And apparently, I was reading an interesting article how they somehow put them in a cocoon of something like wax or something, wind up actually putting them in like a little ball. And they move their wings and feet together at such a high rate of speed that it creates friction and heat. And they can actually cook the hornets alive in there. And that's how they defend against them. Our bees don't. They just have stingers, and the stingers kind of just bounce off. So they I know can't we, defend. I know we need to get rid of these things. And one, if you haven't seen it, Google it, because they're like two inches long. So I'm, I'm not allergic to bees, not allergic to wasps, not allergic to any of that stuff. But I'm a big puss. So when I'm walking into my house in the summer and I see a bee, it could be a carpenter bee, which they don't even mess with people. And I, I pretty much scream like a little girl. Um, yeah, I think the audience knows that from your hangnail story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big puss. So if I saw something two inches long flying at me, a murder hornet, I would definitely run for the hills. But I guess if, so if the Japanese, you said, if they're bees, if they've been able to construct bees or they, whatever. They they've just evolved apparently over time. If the time. bees were able to evolve, it seems like we need to just make a deal with Japan and say, hey, we need to get some of those bees over here to take care of the murder hornets. Because right now, they're just on the West Coast of Washington, from what I hear. Right. That's where, apparently, they've made their first uh, appearance here. And so they, they made this, because I saw it on the news, too. So they made this appearance. If they know where they're at, obviously, they don't know if that's all there is. But I assume, just with the few they found or whatever, they're already saying, well, we're taking them out. They're not just like, well, let's just see what happens. <laughs> That's like a good question. Think, uh, now, I would like to think that, you know, the experts in Washington State are like, okay, these things are definitely, we don't need them. Kill them. Just kill them. Get the big fly swatters and take them down. They, they just hired Rambo. <laughs> they just, He's got his M60 LMGs in each arm. He's just taking them. I don't know, man. I hear stuff like that. I'm just like, well, remember in the 80s? Wasn't it the 80s with the killer bees? Yeah. That came up from where? Africa. Africa, yeah. That was the big thing in the 80s was killer bees made their way over here. Then once again, I was a teenager. We were teenagers. So 
it didn't really hit my radar enough to look into it, but I don't know, took may, care of them, I guess. Maybe it's the DNR, and they, they I'm assuming they're, they're aware of it because the story's hitting. So it's starting to show up everywhere. Um, that would be interesting to see what they do with it because, you know, um, I, and maybe it wouldn't have hit our radar as much, but since we're all at home, we're going, huh, wonder what's going on for news today. Ooh, murder hornets. That could be. <laughs> Everybody's stuck at home. Well, hey, if you know anything about murder hornets and want to be on the show, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, once again, Dennis and Andy show at yahoo.com. Yep. And uh, something fun came out this week. So we'll, we'll, we'll change gears just a little okay. bit. What is it? So I, which we won't talk about in this show, I, fi- I finished off Star Wars, The Clone Wars. So the final episode, uh, the fir- final two dropped, got to see it. Absolutely phenomenal ending leads directly into, for the most part, uh, uh, episode three of the of the movie trilogy. Um, it was a great ending. But episode three mm-hmm. is technically Return of the Jedi. Well, no, no. we're talking episode three of the uh, of, of the prequel, which leads into New Hope. So it was, you know, because this is the formation of Darth Vader. So the movie covers it, but this leads into the stuff before and just a little bit after. So there's a it 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 ties it in very well. Okay. Well, anyway, with that, the the Mandalorian, which everybody loved. um, So we're like, well, we've been waiting for, you know, the 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 baby Yoda, uh, the child toys to pop out. Well, before the toys pop out. Or actually, the toys should be coming out. Um, but they, they, they put out something pretty fun that was adorable we have to talk about. Adorbs. Yep. What is it? Let's hear it. Chia Pet has come out with the child. So it's oh. Baby Yoda in his little carrier that's in there. It's adorable looking. And then you build your Chia Pet so the entire thing behind him is all green and flowery. And yeah, I think uh, a lot of kids and fans are, are probably going to go nuts for this. You know, I don't have a green thumb. Um, Do you need one for a Chia Pet? I don't really know. I haven't had a Chia Pet since I was a kid. And don't you think they could have... They could have uh, made this one a little different. So instead of the... The chia itself, the, the hard part being like that orange color, and then the stuff that grows is green. Wouldn't it have made more sense if they sculpted the stuff so it, so Yoda was green, and then the stuff that grew was like the orange color? Oh. Yoda's green after all. Yeah, that, that is true. Yeah. That is true, but... Um, should have consulted with us first. Yeah, we, we might have uh, given them some insight. We do oh, do marketing. Or, or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you again for joining us. We will catch you all next week when we have some strange tales, weird news to talk about. Yep. We've always got some great stuff uh, lined up. And if you've got any suggestions, like I said at the beginning of the show, go on our Facebook or email us. Drop us a note. Look forward to seeing you. Bye. Until next week, grab your 3D glasses. Get your favorite comic books, roll them up, and put them in your back pocket the way you should treat comics. Throw your pigskin up on the mantle. This is Dennis. This is Andy. Later, Later friends. friends.